From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, it's Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, as we approach Monday's Iowa caucus, a number of Georgia elected officials will be braving sub-zero temperatures to campaign for Republican presidential candidates. One of them is State Representative Scott Hilton. We'll talk with him live this morning. I'm Bill Nygut, and we'll ask whether the harsh weather expected for caucus night could have an impact on the outcome of the race. And in Georgia, the state of our state is strong, growing, and prosperous because we trust our citizens more than we trust the government. Governor Kemp lays out his agenda for the legislative session. Much of it is about spending state money and attacking Washington. Plus, it's Friday, so we'll answer your questions from the listener mailbag and share who we think is who's up and who's down this week. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Tia Mitchell, who's usually on Fridays, is on her way, or at least trying to get to Iowa in <laughs> blizzard weather. And Patricia will join us later in the show. She's also headed to Iowa shortly. But, Bill, it is not going to be easy to get there. There is a blizzard or at least extremely cold temperatures headed Iowa's I, way. I, Greg, I know I've said it on the show before. I spent a lot of years covering Iowa caucuses. I've been in a lot of blizzards there. And I am so glad to be sitting here in the studio today. But I know Patricia and Tia will do a remarkable job covering, even in the midst of a blizzard. There were uh, there is there was a slight chance I was going to go with the governor to Davos, which was also going to be quite cold. But now it's looking like New Hampshire's twenty-three degree weather is balmy yeah. in comparison to. <laughs> That's to right. You'll be headed to New Hampshire next week. Next week. Well, that is where we can start because a number of Georgia elected officials are also heading to Iowa this weekend. Marjorie Taylor Greene plans to be in Des Moines for Donald Trump. Rich McCormick will tell Iowans why they ought to caucus for Ron DeSantis. And Representative Scott Hilton, who joins us right now, is headed to the frozen north to lend a hand to Nikki Haley. Representative, thanks for joining us. Greg, thank you so much uh, for for, uh, allowing me to join. Great to chat with you and share. And it's just going to be so much fun to be on the ground there. Uh, to experience it. I, I've been in Georgia 20 years, but I actually grew up in the Midwest in Kansas. Uh, and so I'm a hearty Midwesterner and, and ready to kind of experience some blizzard-like conditions out there in Iowa. And Representative Hilton, you have a media background, so you also, you know, like to be in the front row of history. So I know there's a little aspect of that when going to Iowa. Of course, you want to help Nikki Haley too, but forecasters are expecting life-threatening, and I'm not saying that lightly, life-threatening cold temperatures this weekend with wind chills as low as negative 45 degrees in the Iowa area. So why, what do you hope to accomplish there in, in that freezing weather? Well, the good news is no matter what happens, we're going to make history either way. Uh, we're going to make history probably as the coldest Iowa caucus ever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're also yeah. hoping to make history in that we put forth Nikki Haley as our, our uh, pick for, for president of the United States, and she moves ahead in the process. Um, what we're hoping to accomplish is get on the ground, energize volunteers, energize voters. We hope to get out and knock. If it's safe, we'll do so. There's a number of Nikki Haley events uh, while we're out there as well. And then ultimately attend the caucus on Monday evening at seven o'clock and speak on behalf of the campaign and sway caucus goers uh, to join the, the Nikki Haley camp. 
Well, I, I would, that's just what I was about to ask you, uh, Representative. What is your schedule look like? Are you going to be out as a surrogate uh, traveling to, were you supposed to be traveling to various locations on her behalf? And now, of course, it could be up in the air based on travel conditions. So uh, what do you do once you hit the ground in uh, Des Moines? Well, fantastic question. So we fly out tonight at nine o'clock. I'm hoping that most of the weather has passed by then, so we should be good. And then we wake up Saturday morning and we start making calls. And uh, so what they've done, very organized campaign. Uh, they've said, Scott, we want you to be a team captain for us in Cedar Rapids. And so I've recruited five to six Georgians here to fly up with me. We're going up tonight. Uh, there's going to be about you know a, a good handful of folks up there in Cedar Rapids and make calls Saturday morning if the weather... Uh, you know, agrees with us. We'll go out and, and knock some doors Saturday afternoon, do the same on Sunday. And then on Monday, that's where the real work begins. We go to the caucus site, we get signs set up, we start greeting people. Uh, we let them know that, hey, we're there to speak on behalf of the campaign. And uh, and that's, like I said, when the, when the magic happens. Um, let me ask you a follow-up question, if I may. Obviously, all of the polling shows Donald Trump uh, uh, winning the Iowa caucus with over 50% of the vote. We'll wait to see if that develops. But a lot of Donald Trump's voters are older. Um, a lot of them are rural. Rural parts of the state are really going to be hit hard by the blizzard conditions. To what extent do you think the weather might have an impact, number one, on his turnout at caucuses? And the same question about your candidate, Nikki Haley. Yeah, it's a great question. I know Iowans are hardy people and they're going to get out uh, and they really take this responsibility seriously. So I think you're going to see a, a healthy turnout. But to your point, uh, Haley supporters tend to be more suburban, urban type voters. They're going to be closer to the caucus site, uh, maybe a little bit younger in age as well. So uh, should be. So we're hoping for a very good night uh, for Haley. Uh, her folks are motivated. The momentum is clearly behind her campaign. So people are excited to get out uh, on her behalf. And, you know, latest polling has her right there in second position. And if that's the case, this is quickly going to get down to a two-person race. Hmm. And if it's a two-person race getting into New Hampshire, our campaign feels very good about our chances there. And, you know, if we're able to score very well in New Hampshire, it's really off to the races at that point. We're here with State Representative Scott Hilton, who is heading to Iowa this weekend to stump for Nikki Haley. And you can hear that optimism of his voice now that Chris Christie's out of the race. Uh, and DeSantis, polls show you know, a pretty close race for second place between DeSantis and Nikki Haley. Um, but my question is, give us a, a, a Iowa caucusing dummies 101 lesson, you know, because it's so different than what Georgians are expecting. What, what anyone, anyone else, you know, any experience you have going to the ballot box in Georgia or pretty much any other state other than Iowa and Nevada, um, Caucusing is so different than just casting a ballot. So, so what are you planning for? Can you tell can you tell listeners what it's like to caucus? That is so true. So here in Georgia, we have 17 days of early voting. We have two Saturdays. You have election day. So a long period of time. Our democracy is fantastic. I love it. It plays out so different in so many other states. So the Iowa caucus, it's run by the party. The votes are actually counted by the party, not the state. Uh, and it's a one-day event, one evening event. Uh, it opens up at seven o'clock everyone convenes in a, a gymnasium, a middle school, a church. And it, there's about 800 precincts uh, all over Iowa where, these, where folks meet, ranging in size from as little as 500 to 2000 folks gather in a gym and essentially surrogates for each of the campaigns line up on a wall. And they say, OK, who's here 
give me two minutes to talk on Donald Trump, on Chris Christie, on Nikki Haley, DeSantis. And so as a surrogate, my job will be to get up, give a two to five minute speech on why Nikki Haley is the best candidate. And then I was literally just kind of write down, here's who my vote is, hand it to the, the precinct captain. They count them right then and there. And then those reports get get fed up to the state party and we get results. So um, hopefully, like I said, I'm, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hope you get timely results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, know, it's interesting. um, As you well know, uh, in any other basic election, uh, the uh, candidate surrogates or supporters have to stay far away from the polls. There's a a border that can't cross. In Iowa, it's the exact opposite. You are face-to-face hoping to persuade people to come over to your side. And with that in mind, uh, Representative Hilton, why Nikki Haley? It's a great question. Uh, why Nikki Haley? It's such an easy choice for me. A, she's got the momentum, but B, she's someone who can unite not only our party, but the nation. They're looking for someone. We're ready to turn the page. Listen, we've got two people running for office, the leaders of, of both parties, who a majority of Americans say we want different options. And, and Nikki represents that different option, that young conservative who can talk in a winsome way that brings people together. It's been amazing to me how many people from both sides of the aisle have come and say, I really like her. And for me, when I see the data that shows she's got a 17 point lead on Biden, it's time for the Republican Party to get back to winning again. And she can win and she can win in a big way. And so uh, it's exciting to me to have youth, conservatism and just a new voice uh, for our nation that's going to bring people together in a time that we need it so much. And so uh, for me, Nikki was a, a no brainer. And man, for the Republican Party to have the first uh, female president is, is huge. Uh, she is such a strong voice. Great international experience at a time that we need it so much. Uh, and and so, again, she is just the right pick at, at this time. Representative Hilton, there's a lot of pressure on elected officials right now in Georgia to take sides. Our primary is not till March 12th, but you've already seen a number of endorsements come out. But a lot of lawmakers and a lot of other Republican elected officials are staying on the sidelines. Can you talk about what the courtship is like when a candidate like Nikki Haley is trying to seek your endorsement? Yeah, I mean, really no seeking. It was me seeking out her just because for me, it was such a a no brainer and just such an excitement to support her campaign. This is a time for choosing and it's a time for choosing of which direction we want our party to go. And I think voters have said we are tired of the chaos. We want a leader who can lead uh, without all the noise and the baggage kind of behind her. And, and, you know, Nikki's just got such great experience. Yeah, it's fascinating. There's very few that have come out publicly uh, to support. It's a divisive time, too. Right. And I think folks are are nervous. Uh, but again, it's time to take a stand and say, this is the direction I want our I see our party go in the future. And do you see a thawing? I mean, you, do you see any Republican elected officials so warming to Donald Trump? I know you have. I know you've obviously taken your claim on Nikki Haley's campaign, but are you starting to see a shift from some Republicans? I'm seeing the the, red, the anti-Trump rhetoric um, among among leading Republicans starting to ratchet down a little bit since he still has this commanding lead in the polls. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak for my colleagues, but I'll tell you just anecdotally, as I'm out talking to hundreds of Georgians, it's kind of like, you know, Scott, I really liked his policy, but I'm just tired of the chaos and I'm ready to move on. And so that's the beauty of a Haley campaign is you get all of the the Trump policies without all the the chaos that comes along with it. And so, uh, yeah, to a person, it's, you know, I, I like he had a good four years. But we're ready for something different. We're ready for someone younger. We're ready for someone that doesn't bring all the divis- division and divisiveness uh, that, that a Trump candidate brings. And so uh, I think a lot of the support that he may have 
is waning that people are really looking for another option uh and and they're desperate for that and and that's what nikki haley represents um we know that democrats uh certainly in the fall campaign are going to place a lot of their emphasis on the anti-abortion uh uh sentiment of republicans nikki haley has tried to sort of straddle that question i'm not sure people would say she's already always done it successfully but how do you think her uh, efforts to be a little bit more moderate on the issue of abortion are going to play with Republican voters first in Iowa, then in New Hampshire and moving forward from there? Yeah, she gave one of the most articulate answers to the abortion question that, that I've ever heard. And frankly, all Republicans ought to just record that clip and put it on repeat. It, w- it was fantastic in the way that it addressed to say, listen, I'm pro-life. But I do believe in exceptions, and I do believe reaching out to folks who uh, maybe be on the opposite side of this argument. And so uh, I thought she positioned herself in such a way that not only appeals to Republicans, but to a general election audience. Uh, again, when I heard her deliver that answer in, in, in one of the debates, uh, it was just we ought to be putting that on repeat uh, as a candidate, uh, her, her answer to that, because it is going to be an issue that Democrats bring up uh, routinely in, in the general election. We're here with State Representative Scott Hilton. Hilton. A Georgia, a Gwinnett-based Republican who's heading out to Iowa to stump for Nikki Haley this weekend. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of debate about whether Iowa should remain the first in the nation, uh, vote, uh, first in the nation election voting site, caucus site, uh, because of its nature, because uh, it's it's overwhelmingly white, especially on the Democratic side. There's been a lot of consternation uh, and changes in electoral schedule. But what's really interesting to me, Scott, is the insti- the organizational depth that it takes to campaign and to stump in a place like Iowa, because you have 800 or so caucus sites and you've got to line up people like you for hundreds of them. Right. Um, And so, you know, when you go to Cedar Rapids, which is, which is a blast because you're out of Des Moines, uh, you're out of sort of the, the media center and you're out there. I was in Cedar Rapids four years ago with former mayor, then mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms, who was stumping for Joe Biden there. And it was so fascinating to me to see, her speak to a group of Iowans who had probably never heard of her in their lives, quoting Andre 3000 (laughs) to a group of Iowans on a cold uh, Monday night. (laughs) What, what message do you plan to to deliver to Iowans who probably have never heard of you either about why they should vote for Nikki Haley? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to try to connect with the audience. And I'm going to do that in a way that my grandfather actually uh, lived in Iowa City and worked in Cedar Rapids. And so uh, we you know, have a deep, deep connection to Iowa. And, and so it's not just me flying in. But the message I'm going to share is, is listen, I come from Georgia where we've become the political epicenter, uh, not only in the past, but this year, too. And uh, if Nikki Haley is our candidate and she's at the top of the ticket, Republicans begin to expand the map there. We begin to talk about seats that were no, weren't competitive that all of a sudden become competitive. And so uh, to my message earlier, it's time to win again. And with a Haley candidate at the top of the ticket, we're winning in big ways a- across the country from the top of the ticket all the way down to your local school board. And so um, that's going to be my pitch is, is, listen, great conservative values and policies along with the opportunity to expand our political map and get back to the business of winning. I'm curious about uh, thinking about what the standings at the end of the night on Monday might look like. Ron DeSantis, of course, has been all in for Iowa. He brags about having uh, been in every single uh, county in the state. If he should come in third place, his path forward seems a little bit 
uh, much more difficult than Nikki Haley's. Nikki Haley could afford, she can escape from Iowa with a third place finish because she expects that she'll be much stronger in New Hampshire. Um, so do you see it that way as well? I know you want her to come in second, but or first, the, or first <laughs> but we, let's be honest. Donald Trump seems to have a lock on winning Iowa. Um, it, we could be shocked, but I, I doubt it. Um, can she get away with third place if that should happen? I think so. I don't think I don't expect it to happen. But as I evaluated the race and decide who I want to get behind, I love DeSantis. He's got great conservative credentials and values. And I love what he did in Florida. But I just didn't see a path. You know, he's not going to win in New Hampshire. He's not going to win in South Carolina. And so, you know, you lose three states in a row. And I get nervous about any candidate that's going all in on one state. Uh, and, And he spent millions of dollars. And for whatever reason, it's just not resonating right now with voters. And so, uh, Nikki Haley's the candidate that's got the momentum. Uh, yeah, if she finishes in second or third, I, if DeSantis doesn't have a strong showing, I, I think that's the end of his campaign right there. And then we're down to a ter- two-person race. With Chris Christie having gotten out and 39-34 uh, was the latest poll I saw in New Hampshire, I think Haley could potentially overtake uh, uh, the, Trump in, in New Hampshire. And that really shocks the world. And then that puts us on a whole other track going into South Carolina, Nikki Haley's home state. Home so. State. Yeah, the path there just seems very, very viable. I mean, there's a few things that got to fall in place, but it's all right there to be had. We're here with Representative Scott Hilton. Before we let you go, Representative, I want to talk about a legislation that you're backing, um, bipartisan legislation, really, tax credits for gun owners who buy safes, locks, other safety storage devices. Is this an area where you think Republicans and Democrats can work together on this year? I think so. Uh, you know, there's legislation that I'm personally working on right now. We'll introduce it sometime here pretty soon. I, I think it's just smart. I think it's a way that we can encourage folks uh, to own guns, folks who are doing the right thing, uh, but to do it in a way that's safe. You know, a lot of the gun violence is from guns that are stolen out of cars or out of homes. And so if we provide credits to encourage people to hold those things in, in a more safe manner, uh, that's fewer guns that we've got out on the street in the hands of bad guys. So it, it's legislation that rewards the good guys and keeps guns out of the hands of bad guys. I think that is a common sense uh, across the board uh, piece of legislation. So uh, it, it, excited to get behind something like that. And we know your Democratic colleagues, including uh, State Representative Michelle Au, is are, are, are working toward that goal as well. So we look forward to seeing what happens there. Thank you so much for joining us, Representative Hilton. My pleasure. Great to see you guys. Appreciate the opportunity. Honored to serve House District 48. Thank you all. Pull out, that, pull out that warm Kansas coat. <laughs> Save I've had people bring long underwear, coats, jackets. Yeah, so I appreciate it. Negative, sub-zero, negative 45-degree wind chill, Bill. I can't imagine. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's going to be fun. I'll take lots of pictures. There you go. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. 
Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives for me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. You can consider it your jolt of daily political news. Just go to AJC.com slash newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com slash newsletters. The show is also available on demand on your favorite podcast platform. And Bill, we wanted to note too, Democrats will not be caucusing in Iowa. Yeah, their last caucus in 2020 was a complete debacle. And so not only did that impact uh, their decision to move their primary now, but also Joe Biden said, I do not want to start in Iowa. And when the president of the United States says that, the party follows. And actually, Joe Biden wanted to start, at least have one of his earliest votes here in Georgia. We were we were on the docket for the fifth state in the early voting states, but that did not happen <laughs> because <laughs> that decision is not up to the president. That is actually up to Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who decided to have our primary March 12th. Okay. We're here. At, well, you just heard Bill Nygut. We're here in studio with Bill Nygut. We also have Patricia Murphy joining us now. Uh, Patricia, thanks for joining us. We miss you here in the oh, studio. I'm so happy to. I'm happy to, Greg. Hello. Hello. Well, you and I were at the Capitol listening to Governor Kemp's State of the State speech yesterday in the House chambers. <laughs> and what I wrote in an analysis this morning, and tell me if you agree or not, but how this speech served up a reminder that Governor Kemp is still on the campaign trail even if he's not running for re-election, he must have mentioned Washington at least half a dozen times in the 34-minute speech. So it almost seemed like he was trying to draw a contrast between Georgia policies and, and federal policies. Oh, I don't think he was just trying to do it. I think that's exactly what he <laughs> yeah. did. And it, it wasn't just the number of times he mentioned Washington. It's that it was the very first thing he said. He said, while Congress and Washington are conditioned to um, block legislation and members of both parties, he did say both parties, um, are more interested in getting uh, headlines and tweets. We and Georgia have been working on our agenda. And so um, I had a, more than a few Democrats text me that it sounds like he might be running for something <laughs> <laughs> in Washington uh, rather, than, uh, rather than just talking about something down here in, in Georgia. But he was definitely very focused on making that contrast. And I think that's hugely important for Georgians because Republicans know that many Georgians are struggling financially and they feel like they're struggling financially. And Kemp wants to say, don't blame us for that. You should blame Washington for that. And here's why. And even some Republicans were texting saying, is he auditioning for something? Let me give our listeners a glimpse of a, a listen to this is just one of many, many lines that Governor Kemp uh, issued, deployed, attacking Washington and contrasting with Georgia. And they'll see the hardships Washington, D.C. has brought into every home and placed on every kitchen table across our state. Bill, it was interesting to hear all these lines. A lot of them drew ovations from Republicans and, as you can imagine, stony silence from Democrats. Yeah, well, I, I turn back to you and Patricia on this, Greg. Um, I would understand the, all these attacks on Democrats, on Washington, if this were his uh, maybe final state of the state when he is looking really, really closely at a next step politically. It's interesting that he decides to do it so soon, really kind of staking out a position that can carry him through 2025 and into 2026 in whatever campaign he decides he may want him out. Yeah, Bill, he's got two separate challenges. Well, a couple separate challenges. One, he wants to stay in the national spot mix. He wants to stay in the national political conversation. He doesn't want to be seen as a lame duck this early. He does harbor 
future ideas, maybe visions of running for U.S. Senate against John Ossoff or potentially running for president even in 2028 or beyond. So he wants to stay in that conversation. But at the same time, he wants to portray a message of strength to his lawmakers, right? He wants to still mm. be able to push his agenda through. And so you kind of say, saw a, a melding of that, at least an attempt to meld those two together. As he, I mean, Patricia, it was really, when it came to, down to policy, there was very little new, sweeping new policies, a lot of budget-related agenda. It's a, it's a heavily budget-related agenda that he's staking out. Of the few policy issues he brought up specifically, one was supporting supportive of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, which he has already kind of staked his position on earlier, but he reinforced that. And the other was, to at this point, it was the most unequivocal uh, endorsement for the school voucher bill that failed last year after rebellion from 16 House Republicans. Yeah, I think it's been unclear since that measure failed on the last day of the last session exactly what was going to happen. Governor Kemp threw his weight behind that voucher bill, but not until very, very late in the session. And so this was him answering that question. What what happens now with the voucher bill? He's saying upfront and early, that's something he wants to see passed. That's a really, really important note of early endorsement, because typically what the governor wants, the governor gets down here at the Capitol. It's, uh, it's, uncanny how that happens around here. So uh, he did also talk about another round of teacher pay raises. Mm-hmm. I think that was really important. But I think the what he laid out is reflective of the fact that this is a two-year session. Anything that didn't get across the line last year, they're coming back to this year. Any unfinished business, um, any uh, changes that they want to make to the budget, they're going to work on hammering those differences out um, next week when the appropriations committees really sit down to get down to the details. But I agree, it really it, he didn't have any kind of major major announcements. It's just more of the same. But when you look at somebody who is the most popular elected official in the state, more of the same seems like the smart thing to do. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Um, obviously, for quite a long time now, Republicans have um, uh, touted the fact that under Governor Kemp, uh, they've been very fiscally responsible. They've built up this $16 billion reserve. Um, and, and now the governor uh, says, I'm going to spend some of it down, uh, uh, $2 billion for infrastructure and schools. But Democrats respond by saying, that reserve is a mirage. What it really is, is an underinvestment in crucial needs for many people in the state. And they point specifically, of course, to full Medicaid expansion. Yeah, let's hear specifically the Democratic response right now. The governor is currently sitting on a $16 billion surplus. You heard me right. Billion with a B. We have seen one of Georgia's only level one trauma centers shudder. We saw our maternity mortality rate rise in the wake of this reckless decision to nearly totally ban abortions. And we continue to underfund our schools. His big empty plans are covered, are covering just this abject negligence. It sounds nice, but they do nothing to address the root causes of the challenges many Georgians face. 
That's House Minority Leader James Beverly. And Patricia, this echoes what we heard from a lot of Democrats yesterday and really throughout the last couple of years, that these green energy jobs bonanza, the overflowing state coffers that Kemp and other Republicans tout are thanks, at least in part, to far-reaching federal stimulus and climate change packages that President Biden passed over Republican objections. Yeah, and they say, and it's true, that there are just huge gaping holes in the healthcare system um, throughout the state, throughout the state, especially in very, very rural, rural areas and very, very urban areas. And they were talking about um, the Atlanta Medical Center that closed indeed last year and uh, left a huge hole in that part of Atlanta in terms of emergency care and just doctor's offices that um, people had relied on there. There are still um, dozens of counties around the state that don't have an OBGYN. There are tons and tons of places where people don't have access to the health care that they want. And so Democrats said, yes, $16 billion, that should have been spent a long time ago, and it should have been in this way. So Democrats are really working. They don't have a lot of power at the Capitol, but they're working to message to Republicans and Democrats um, to let them know this is what this state would look like if we were in charge, and it would be different. Patricia, I was sitting right next to you doing the entire speech. Was there anything that surprised you about the governor's tone or or his or or, or the policies he laid out in particular? Yeah, you know, he never got into any social issues at all. Mm-hmm. He did not talk about abortion, never mentioned it, did not talk about gun control. This is a governor who has been so forward on both of those issues. But the reality is, is that he's already achieved so much of what he wanted to. He's gotten such big conservative goals across the finish line already in terms of the six-week abortion ban and lifting um, or implementing constitutional carry, which is permitless carry in the state. All of those big ticket items on the social issues are done. So there's not much left to do on those. But he didn't mention them at all. And so what resulted was what sounds like a very economy focused, very kind of nuts and bolts governance focused um, speech, along with public safety. And those are the two things that pull highest among Georgians, no matter who you're talking to. I'm interested, uh, going back to school vouchers for a moment mm-hmm. here, in a um, sort of mixed message we get uh, from the governor in this uh, speech. On one hand, he is once again uh, proposing to give even more money to teachers, which obviously teachers appreciate. Um, at the same time, he made it clear that while he came into the voucher issue last session very, very late, mm-hmm. maybe not soon enough to influence the outcome of that vote, at the same time, teachers certainly in the public school systems across the state are not happy about the idea of vouchers. It's an interesting kind of balancing act or mixed message, yeah. however you want to look at that. It is, and, and it's one that crosses party lines, Bill. And we saw that last year when 16, I mentioned it earlier, 16 House Republicans, many of them who represent rural areas where their local school districts are worried that that these school voucher measures that would that would give thousands of dollars to parents in what they call failing schools and struggling schools, uh, the option to go spend those in private schools or other ways or homeschooling or other ways would undercut the public school system here. And, you know, we, we interviewed House Speaker John Burns earlier, and we played some of that interview on Politically Georgia on Thursday. But what Speaker Burns said was, when you have 16 House Republicans revolting, they don't do it lightly. This was not an easy vote for them to go against the party line, to go against Governor Kemp's 
own, you know, endorsement. And as you mentioned, this was a much more forceful way to enter. What he did, though, was interesting because he didn't specifically endorse the bill that failed last year. He endorsed a bill. Yeah. He said there's 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 been too many next years. The, 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 basically, that the, the critics have run out of excuses. Something needs to pass. So he's putting his capital on the line on that one. You know, Majority Leader Chuck Efstration, of course, was on our mm-hmm. uh, show recently, and we asked him about vouchers, and we asked him the question about why uh, we said, well, you know, a lot of public uh, educators really oppose vouchers because it will take money out of the public education system because uh, money follows an individual student. Efstration's answer to that was, well, it, it's really not the problem you think it is because it's up local school districts. I think this is basically what he said, will make up uh, the, uh, uh, the loss of funds that tr- follow students to private schools. That's putting a burden. If I heard him right, that's putting a pretty big burden on the local system. Yeah, Patricia, I mean, that's he, he, and he's alluding to more funding in the QBE formula and yeah. all that. But, you know, it strikes me and to that point, Patricia, that the, the governor's he's, he's making a if, if this does not, if some sort of school voucher bill does not pass, um, and after he took a step back on what he calls tort reform, but basically an overhaul of litigation rules, you know, he, he's got some stuff on the line, you know, and, and I know he's he's trying not to be perceived as a lame duck. He's already got a number of Republicans who are at least out there uh, maneuvering to replace him. And the last thing he, he wants is to have any sort of show of weakness right now. Yeah, so it's interesting that he's picking up a bill that he had problems with inside his own caucus. That's really not been the case in some of, in many of the other items that he picked up. Um, but this one, they know that especially rural Republicans have come to them. And I think this is why we're not hearing exactly which bill they want to get behind yet. It feels like they're still drafting it um, because rural members have said, there is no private school. Guess mm-hmm. what? If Great. You can go to a private school with this money. There's literally not a private school to go to if somebody wanted to make a different choice. And homeschooling is really something for people who have the financial flexibility to have a parent at home doing that. And that is not the reality for most Georgians, especially in rural areas. So it's a situation where it does not feel like they've come up with exactly the solution that's going to check the box on on vouchers, school choice, whatever you want to call it. Um, but you do have the three most powerful Republicans, the Speaker, the Governor, and the Lieutenant Governor, all saying very early in the session that they want some kind of a version of that bill to come forward and get passed. Patricia, we mentioned earlier what was left unsaid, culture wars, gun rights expansion, some of the, the transgender battles we've seen in earlier sessions. But also what was left unsaid were some of the biggest big ticket items still left on the agenda from last year, uh, overhauling election rules, passing a stalled effort to combat anti-Semitism. And Patricia, perhaps the biggest uh, intrigue of the legislative session, could Georgia expand Medicaid? Governor Kemp didn't say anything about that. He did tout his own more limited version of a of adding more Georgians to the Medicaid roles by with a work requirement or an employ, uh, uh, academic requirements or work eligibility, eligibility requirements. But he didn't specifically say anything about a push to expand the program uh, by following Arkansas model or another model? Yeah, you know, Republicans in the state, I think, are in a bit of a rhetorical bind. They've spent so much time saying that um, Obamacare does not work, cannot work, will not work, won't work in Georgia. Um, but the idea of expanding Medicaid, that w- that is something to be done under Obamacare. It's a program that in which Obamacare 
pays for the lion's share of those costs to states as long as the states will make it available to people um, people here in Georgia. And um, after years and years and years of saying there's no way it's going to work, they're going to have to come up with some alternative, um, though, because they know that people are falling through the cracks with health care and their own constituents are telling them that. So I and with so much money on the table and I think Democrats are right, you know, a, a big piece of that um, probably will go toward extending some version of expanded low-income health care. You know, you can call it what you want, but it looks like they're going to need to really do something on that. Greg, you traveled with the governor to Israel. So you saw how committed he feels uh, he is to the state of Israel. And he's made it clear uh, that he supports the Israelis in their war against Hamas. I was a little surprised that he didn't then pick up on the anti-Semitism definition bill in his speech uh, yesterday because it seems like it's an easy win for him uh, to say we oppose hatred. We certainly oppose hatred against the Jewish people of Georgia, and that's why I believe this anti-Semitism definition bill is so important. It just seemed like it was a, a simple kind of thing for him to do. I oppose hate in the state of Georgia. Yeah, he said very little publicly about that HB 30, about that pending anti-discrimination bill, which would add anti, sorry, anti-Semitism to the definition of Georgia's state hate crimes laws. Uh, I do know, as you mentioned, when he went to Israel uh, and he met, he sat down in a closed door meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. One of the first things Netanyahu asked him was, hey, what's the status of that bill? And he told him, this is what's going on and here's where it is. And it was blocked in the Senate, but it could still pass in 2024. Um, but what we do know is that the Senate's still working on its version? Um, you know, there there is a Republican objector, Ed Setzler. There's some there there might be some other no votes, but you know, Ed Setzler's a freshman Republican state senator. Um, he 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 has influence and he has power, but he he does not have the power to hold up this bill unilaterally if Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones wants it passed. Yeah. And we also heard from House Speaker John Burns on this show just earlier this week when I asked him about what his message for the Senate was on this bill. It was very simple. He said, just pass it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he was unequivocal about that. So the House is clearly, which has already passed the bill, has clearly staked out their opinion. Um, Patricia, I do want to get to another subject about Governor Kemp before we take a break. And that is, there's also this sense that Governor Kemp is enjoying the fruits of a second term because he's going to Davos, Switzerland tomorrow. It's the second time in two years. He went last year as well. He went to this elite global conference that a lot of a lot of Republicans, a lot of conservatives abhor. They hate it because they see it as a, a you know globalist, elitist conference. I asked him that about why he's going. He said it's kind of a dual mission. One is he wants to recruit businesses to come to Georgia, of course. Uh, there'll be a number of global leaders there, a number of uh, business chief executives and others, decision makers there. But also, he says he wants to, in his words, fight the good fight for conservative values at one of the world's most exclusive summits, a place where there's not too many uh, avowed Republicans. Uh, so it seems like he is, you know, just as we, I wrote this morning, he's still on the campaign trail, even though he's not running for re-election. I think he's seems like he's taking that message even to Switzerland. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's sort of a public and a private aspect to the trip to Davos. Publicly, he'll serve on or he'll be on a panel where he will be the Republican governor talking about sort of business friendly conservative values here in the state that he's pushing. Um, But then behind the scenes, it's the much more important piece of it. That's when he'll be meeting with uh, chief executives, with people deciding where to put manufacturing and he won't be alone. You know, conservatives make a big thing about, oh, Davos, boo, you know, but there will be many Republican governors there and they're all competing against each other to bring, um, you know, the next Hyundai or the next Airbus to bring those manufacturing plants to their states. And so it's sort of, um, you know, it's almost like an open house for college admissions. They're all trying to make a good impression and show what they can bring to the table. And um, at this point, it's getting to be that kind of event where Republican governors in particular kind of feel like they have to be there in order to get FaceTime with these executives to hopefully bring home, you know, some good news down the road. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, everything else. So much more on AJC.com. Plus, you get access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community by going to AJC.com start. That's AJC.com start. So you always know what's really going on. Well, we at Politically Georgia love hearing from our listeners. So we set up the Politically Georgia call-in hotline that you can call anytime, 24 hours a day, and record your questions or comments. We play your questions back and answer them right here every Friday during one of our favorite segments of the week. Listener Mailbag and Shaney B. and his team of dozens of interns, legions of interns, <laughs> are always monitoring for your calls. So, Shaney B., what do we got this week? Man, they have been busy because the phones have been ringing off the hook, especially... Over the uh, news that broke this week from the AJC about a court filing alleging that Fulton D.A. Fonnie Willis hired a romantic partner to help prosecute Donald Trump and then profited from the arrangement. So we've had quite a few calls. We're just going to take the top two right off the top and um, we'll hear from Lisa and then we're going to hear from Terrence. Good grief. Fonnie Willis has a private life. Leave her private life alone. That has nothing to do with her job. On one hand, I can tell you all the kind of horrible men that have done these kind of things and everybody looks the other way. She's entitled to privacy for her private life. She didn't give up her life when she became a district attorney. Between Fonnie Willis' uh, the fundraiser she had with Charlie Bailey last year and this new news about her having a potentially you know, relationship with the Georgia prosecutor, what's the likelihood that like the Trump team can get this case tossed out? Thank you. Great, great questions. Patricia, you have a column right now on AJC.com that tackles at least one of these subjects. Do you want to give it a go for the first answer? Yeah, so particularly on the, um, well, I, you know what, I will take, 
um, the first question. Mm-hmm. Um, does she have a right to a private life? Of course, of course, Fannie Willis has the right to a private life, and she's a single, um, unmarried woman, so she is doubly entitled to a private life. Uh, but the problem is that this is a public uh, role that she has allegedly um, brought her private relationship into if these accusations are true and we don't know if they are that's so important to say we just don't know what's going on um uh, she has hired somebody she was involved with to be the top prosecutor um in the trump case um as a part of that his firm nathan wade's firm has been paid more than six hundred thousand dollars of taxpayer money um and then another piece of the accusation is that uh, in turn uh, he has paid for trips for the two of them. Um, that very quickly becomes um, uh, not only kind of a questionable piece of conduct uh, to hire a romantic partner, um, but then also um, the taxpayer dollars involved. Um, and then the ethical and conflict questions um, are things that ha- would you know, have to be resolved. But it is, I can tell you from the Capitol, it's just caused immense anxiety mm-hmm. among Democrats mm-hmm. who are worried about what it could do ultimately to either slow um, or undermine the case against Donald Trump. And Patricia, I mean, to that point, wh- one thing you also mentioned in your column was that uh, Fannie Willis has not given an extensive response yet. She said she promises it will be laid out in court, but we still haven't seen an extensive response to any of these motions. And those Democrats that both you and I are hearing from are really worried about that. They're saying, if you know, where is her where is her her answer to these allegations? Yeah, where is either the um, the flat out denial uh, or the yes, but yes, it's true. But, you know, any kind of context, any shred of anything Democrats would take to work with and they would amplify that message. But something they felt like they could get behind. Um, But they have not had any word from Willis or her team. And it's not because we and every media outlet in the world has not been asking. We, we ask every day, any response, any response, any response. Um, they said they'll file it through court proceedings, but they don't know when. We don't know when. And that just really is leaving Democrats a bit dangling in the wind. I, Patricia, I think you've said it all just now. And in your terrific column today about this, I think what's going to be fascinating is they say they'll respond in court. But Fonnie Willis has now been subpoenaed also to give a deposition in Nathan Wade's ongoing divorce case. And uh, the question will become, will they seal her uh, deposition or will it be open for uh, inspection? There's a, there's already been a part of this story that says that his divorce proceedings uh, have been sealed in, improperly already. Yeah. And to the second question, guys, I mean, we've talked to legal experts. Most think that it won't have a... There's not a legal issue with these motions, but there's an optics issue. It could, it already has. I don't even want to say could. It already has added fuel to the fire for Donald Trump and his allies, who have long been trying to paint this as a politicized prosecution. And we've seen efforts already in Georgia to bring legislation or to renew uh, uh, complaints under the state's new DA oversight law to try to reprimand Fonnie Willis. So, Patricia, we're already seeing some of that pushback in the state capitol in the first week of the session. Yeah, and I think the piece about um, oversight is really important. Uh, the There was a huge, huge 
debate down here last year about whether uh, the state should have any role at all overseeing the conduct of district attorneys around the state. Republicans largely said this this has to happen, and they used the term rogue DAs, but they also said, but this isn't about Fonnie Willis. This is about other DAs around the state we'd like to take a look at. Um, Democrats, because many of the DAs are talking about our Democrats who who were elected as DAs, said, you know, the voters should have the final say on this. But the mood down here has really changed at the Capitol. Um, Republicans who had said, no, this isn't about Fonnie Willis are now saying Fonnie Willis now needs to be investigated. So having lawmakers all in the same building, just as this news broke, Mm -hmm. has been very um, has has really accelerated the concept um, and the effort to now start to have significant state oversight and investigations of DAs. And one more note on that question. We asked Pete Skandalakis, the conservative head of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia, if he thought that these legal motions could sink the, the Fulton County election interference case against Trump and his allies. He said he'd be surprised. And he, You know, in terms of the spending, he said, look, a, di- a district attorney, I'm quoting him here, a district attorney can use the funds allocated to the office by the county commissioners as he or she sees fit. So we'll see as, as well, look, we're looking very closely Fannie Willis's response to all this. And we know she'll be speaking at a Martin Luther King Jr. event over the weekend. So we'll have reporters there monitoring that. Shani B., do we have time for another question? We do. Let's move um, to an election-related question. And, and real quick, programming uh, production note, uh, Politically Georgia will be on the air Monday, Martin Luther King, uh, the Martin Luther King holiday to cover the Iowa caucuses. So uh, we hope you join us for that. Uh, let's take our last call here. This is Lindsay in Atlanta. Uh, she has a comment about the demand for paper ballots. I'm an election worker. We have paper ballots. People cast paper ballots with our current system using the Dominion voting machines. You type in your selections on the screen, but it, then you print your ballot, and we encourage everyone to review the print ballot before you cast it. So you have a print ballot that is cast and can be checked by hand later. So I don't understand why people are asking for paper ballots when we, we literally already have both paper and electronic. It's a good question, and a lot of people have the same concern that you do, that the system seems to be working well. Gabe Sterling told us on the air the same thing that you did, that there really is a paper ballot which is printed out after you cast your vote on the Dominion system. I think the question now becomes, and they're going to address it in the legislative session, you have a QR code that is on your paper ballot that's fed into the machine. You don't have any um, proof after that of whether or not the machine read your ballot correctly. There's no reason to think it didn't, but that is kind of um, an ongoing sticking point for a lot of people. Yeah, Bill. uh, Gabe Sterling described the multi-million dollar election, the Dominion voting system, as basically a very fancy pen-marking ballot-marking device. (laughs) But as Speaker John Burns said, a lot of people are, or he thinks a lot of people are confused by the QR codes, and he wants something more clarity with that. Okay, guys. That is all the time we have for the question and answer session. Remember, you can always call in at 404-526-2527. We only have a few minutes left to talk about our who's up and who's down for the week. Guys, we always want to end on a high note. So let's start with our who's down. Patricia, who do you got? My who's down is District Attorney Fannie Willis. Um, we don't know if these allegations are true, but they are very concerning and not just to voters. It's very concerning to lawmakers and 
Um, I think people are are worried about what it could do both to her political future, um, but then also to the case against Trump. It may do nothing, but um, more information from her would be very helpful. Uh, my who's down, I hate to say it, is Arthur Blank. He's a remarkable philanthropist. The West Side Future Project, which is transforming the West Side, is largely being done with his money. He's given a fortune to Children's Hospital, but he just can't pick the right head football coach, and neither can his team. And yet, the same people who have picked bad head coaches in the past are going to pick the next head coach. I like Bill delving into sports. Okay, my my who's down is for the week is the insurance powers and big business boosters who are pushing for what they call tort reform. It seemed like Governor Kemp just didn't have the votes or didn't want to spend the capital to pass something this session, so he's announced it's a multi-year effort that will spill into 2025. Patricia, who's your who's up for the week? My who's up for the week is Donald Trump. He looks like he's going to get to the beginning of this uh, presidential <laughs> primary process. Never had to do a single debate. Kind of did whatever he wanted, and he's still really way ahead in all the polls. So it may, it may also be his high watermark, but he's at this point getting what he wants. I was uh, going to pick uh, Judge Arthur and Gorin in New York, who was overseeing this Trump business trial, because he's now getting them out of his courtroom and have to put up with Trump. But when I saw the headline this morning that five historically black colleges and universities in Georgia are going to benefit from this $100 million grant from the United Negro College Fund, that's definitely the biggest up of the week. That's a big up. You're right. My who's up for the week? Go a little different direction. My colleagues, Patricia Murphy at Tia Mitchell and all the Iowans who are braving the, <laughs> the blizzard to head to Iowa this weekend and do their democratic duties. Uh, I would be there. <laughs> I wish I was there even in the snow, in the cold. But either way, the negative 45 degree wind chill makes the 20 degree weather in New Hampshire the week after that seem downright balmy. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live weekday mornings at 10 a.m. on 90.1 WABE in Atlanta. Or follow Politically Georgia on your favorite podcast app and hear new episodes every afternoon. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. Join us again Monday for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. 
So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.